0: I'm Zim and you're listening to the Helpful Photographer Podcast in collaboration with New York City Photo Safari. To register for a safari, please visit newyorkcityphotosafari.com. Today I'm being joined by Anthony Cook. Tony was the astronomical observer at the Griffith Park Observatory for over 40 years. Originally he started photographing the night sky on film, now he's moved to digital. I first met Tony in the 90s when I worked for the observatory as a photography assistant. Tony was my boss. Hey, Tony, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Zim.
0: All right, so let's get right to it. Over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me tons of questions about shooting the night sky. And in particular, you know, every time there's a full moon out, somebody wants to know how to shoot the moon. So if you're shooting with a 400 millimeter lens... I want to know, what is the slowest shutter speed you can shoot that at and still get a sharp image and not see that it's moving because, you know, both the Earth and the moon are moving at the same time?
1: Okay, so at 400 millimeters, it takes about a tenth of a second or so before you would notice any blurring, even at highly magnified view. Fortunately, that's a lot longer than you need to record a full moon.
0: Fantastic. So we're talking about 400 millimeters on a full-frame sensor, right? Yes. One of the key problems that we find shooting the moon, it doesn't quite fill up the whole frame. At 400 millimeters on a full-frame sensor, it's even less than a third of the actual frame. As a result of this, if you're relying on your camera's metering system to take that exposure, what happens is you get a lot of the night sky. As a result, your entire exposure is a little bit skewed. In your experience, what do you find the proper exposure to be for the moon?
1: So are we talking about a full moon or a quarter moon?
0: Oh, right. That would make a difference, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, because even though, for instance, when the moon looks like it's a quarter moon, when it looks like it's half lit, really its brightness is only about an eighth as much as it is when it's full. So it makes a big difference when we're shooting the moon.
0: So I'm talking about a full moon.
1: All right, so a full moon is basically like a big rock lit by the sun. Say we're shooting at f16 with our 400 millimeter lens, the exposure time would be about 1 125th of a second. Basically,
0: what you just told me is the sunny 16 rule. And I just realized it's the sunny 16 rule because it's being lit by the same sun that's lighting us.
1: Yeah, so that's a handy way to remember it. Yeah, and as I said earlier, it is a rock being lit by the sun. Now it can be a little bit off from that, so you might have to bracket a stop either way from it, depending on how high the moon is in the sky, just because our air absorbs some of the light and it can you know, dim the moon when it's low or it looks brighter than average when it's high overhead.
0: That's fantastic because essentially anywhere you are in the world, the full moon every single month is fundamentally going to look the same.
1: Okay, now sometimes you hear about super moons or mini moons, And it turns out that doesn't affect the exposure just because the surface brightness of the moon stays the same. So it'll be, you know, up to 14% smaller, but the brightness is no different. The only reason I mention it is that newspapers recently have been making a big deal about it every month. I call it a hypermoon for (laughs) devious reasons. But, you know, as long as it gets people looking at the moon, I guess it's fine.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I remember in the 90s, you used to head out to the high desert to take pictures of the night sky. Is there a reason why we've got to go so far out?
1: Yes. The main reason is light pollution, because whenever you're near a populated area, it is always lit. And the glare from lights spreads through the sky, just like sunlight scatters in the daytime. City lights scatter in the night sky, so it limits the number of stars that you can see.
0: So I heard that LED lights are actually making it harder to find really dark spaces, even hundreds of miles from a city.
1: That's right. LED lights spread light across the whole spectrum, and it's really kind of like daylight expanding out from cities.
0: So if you're even getting light pollution 200 miles out of Los Angeles, how are all these people getting these amazing pictures of the night sky?
1: Ah, well that's where technology has come to the rescue. There are filters you can clip into your camera that actually eliminate most of the artificial glow and let through the natural unique colors coming to us from the universe.
0: I guess we'll have to do another podcast on those filters and uh, how to uh, eliminate some of these issues, huh?
1: You know, actually, I've seen recently, there's a fellow in Watts in downtown central Los Angeles, who's actually getting incredible images of very faint objects in the universe, galaxies with strings of stars attached to them and things which are very difficult to photograph even in a dark sky. And somehow he's getting incredible images from his backyard. He's doing that because of filters, you think? Yes. So he just has the newest filters because they're actually coming up with new formulations of filters as lights change in cities. And they just work amazingly well. Most people consider it sort of a write-off that you can't do that kind of photography in the city, but that's actually not true.
0: Okay, so let's say you're far enough from cities and most of the light pollution is gone and you want to shoot the Milky Way. What's your base setting for that, and is that a pretty constant thing?
1: Okay, well, first of all, you might need to experiment a little bit with your camera, but I would try like ISO 800 at f2.8 for 30 seconds. just look at your results and then adjust from there. But yes, the setting will be about the same from night to night.
0: If we were shooting the moon at one-tenth of a second before we can see visible motion, you're now suggesting that we shoot the rest of the sky at 30 seconds. We're not going to see a
1: blurry star? Well, you know, you would at 400 millimeters, but actually for shooting the Milky Way, and remember the Milky Way covers the whole sky, you want to use a wide-angle lens. Because that image is so wide, you could shoot probably half a minute or more before you see any motion of the sky. Maybe even experiment with a minute, depending on exactly how long your focal length is. Speaking of
0: motion, one of the images that so many photographers ask me about when we're shooting the night sky is, how do we get that image with the stars trailing like it's moving in a circle? And in those images I see online, there always seems to be one spot in the sky that's not moving. What is that?
1: Here in the Northern Hemisphere, that spot you see not moving is the North Celestial Pole marked by the North Star. And it's just where the axis of the Earth points. As the Earth turns, everything seems to rotate about that point. And uh, if you photograph centered on that, you'll see everything uh, as beautiful concentric circles moving around the North Star. So
0: how long of an exposure do you have to have to get a complete circle of the stars around the North Star?
1: Well, if it were possible, it would take 24 hours to get that full circle.
0: Oh, that's right. Sorry about that. I hadn't thought about it. (laughs) Okay, so how long of an exposure would you have to have to see a visible
1: trail? So in an hour, stars track about 15 degrees or you know, 1 24th of a circle. So you have to decide how long you want the arcs to be. But there's an additional problem that if you try keeping your camera open for a whole hour on one exposure, the image will degrade. You'll get noise and a lot of artifacts in the image that'll be very unattractive. So you have to have another plan for taking that picture.
0: So how are photographers getting these amazingly clear images? How are they overcoming this noise issue?
1: Okay, well what we're doing is, is taking shorter exposures and combining them together. So we take a 30 second exposure and then follow it by another one, but you have to have also enough time for the image to write from the camera to the uh, card. So you need a little bit of gap between each each exposure. For instance, use a 30-second exposure and a 32-second interval, and you'll end up with a continuous stream. In that two seconds between each exposure, there's not enough of a gap to show up in the picture.
0: So basically, you're shooting multiple exposures for a long period of time, perhaps one or two hours. Is that correct? That's correct. So by my calculation, if you're doing like a two-hour exposure, you're close to 240 images. Are you telling me that you're going to take all those images and you're going to stack them or layer them into one shot? That's right. And what software are we using to do this?
1: Okay, so we can use Photoshop to uh, stack all these images together. You could also do this with Lightroom and even automate the process. And there's other specialized software that you can find by searching that are really just made for star trails.
0: Okay. So we're running a little short on time. I want to go ahead and recap some of the things we talked about today. Shooting the moon, sunny 16 rule. That's F-16, 125th of a second at ISO 100. If you want it a little bit brighter, open up. If you want it a little bit darker, close down. For the full moon. On a full moon, of course. If you're shooting the Milky Way, 2.8 at about ISO 800 at 30 seconds is a good starting point. And if you want trailing stars, you better set up on an interval timer for one and a half to two hours to get that shot. And make sure you have batteries set for that.
1: So one other thing is you have to turn off your noise reduction so that you don't have pauses before you can expose again.
0: Right. Noise reduction takes as long as the exposure. So if you have a 30-second exposure, it's 30 seconds worth of noise reduction time. Okay. Fantastic, Tony. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm probably going to call you back next week for another discussion about using software and things like that.
1: Okay. Well, you're welcome, Jim. Thank you.
0: All right. Catch you next time.